Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. So if you are new, my name is Andrew Chapman. It's good to meet you. Hope to maybe get to talk to you today. Uh, I've been the guiding teacher at this community for coming up on eight years. Um, And I co-teach this class with my good friend, Rachel Tanner-Smith, who's also a teacher here, and her and I alternate every other week. And for the past several weeks, for the past probably four or five months, Rachel and I have been teaching on the core teachings of the Buddha, which you can find as central to every school of Buddhism, whether it's Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana, Vajrayana Buddhism, the core central teachings are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And so we've been walking step by step through each of them. And today we have reached the end. We're at the final path factor, wise concentration. And I know many of y'all have been along for the ride Some of y'all have came to probably the majority of the talks, and so I hope you're enlightened by now. Um, But it's, uh, it's been really great to do this because, I think for two reasons, really, is one is we see how interconnected all of the Buddhist teachings are. Uh, Sometimes the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, are depicted as a wheel. And we can see that there's a lot of subtlety and depth to really all of the teachings. In Zen Buddhism, they have this phrase. They say, Dharma doors, and Dharma meaning the truth. So the door to the truth is infinite. And we vow to enter them all. We try to walk through each door that we can. And I'm a firm believer in this. Whether you're Buddhist or not, whether you have a meditation practice or not, we have experiences throughout our lives that wake us up, you know, that initiate change in our lives. And uh, this is what I think the Buddha refers to as Dharma. This isn't a capital T truth, some special esoteric knowledge that you have to learn from the guru and, you know, held in the sanctity of time and passed down. You know, I think it's the truth of our humanity and I think that the Duda, the, the Duda <laughs> was doing the best that he could to uh, help us examine that for ourselves. And one of the things I like about religious traditions, especially this tradition, is that we're looking a lot at uh, the thinking mind in this tradition. But in all religious traditions, I think we project our own lived experience onto the religious leader. You know, um, we have the things that we like about the Buddha and his life, the things that resonate for us. And I have a few of my own, and I usually teach from that place. I, I pick the parts of the teaching that I most connect with. And I think this can be problematic in a lot of religious traditions. 
But I think it's also a beautiful thing because it's, it gives us an opportunity to see ourselves in the teachings. And so I wanted to share a couple of my projections with you. Um, my first is I see the Buddha as a rebellious youth. You know, he was given everything that he needed. He had a pretty privileged upbringing, still wasn't satisfied, and he left an arranged marriage and a child that he had, and he went out in the world with only the clothes on his back in search of a way to overcome human suffering. And of course, this has spoken to me over the years. I find myself in communities usually of people that live on the fringe. Uh, I tend to find that I feel closest to people that have trouble feeling close to people. And so I like this version of the Buddha, and this is one of my projections. I also tend to look at the Buddha as this inspirational teacher. You know, one of the things that I was saying just a moment ago is the Buddha taught from this perspective, it's called in Pali Sanskrit, Opanayako, which means that you have everything that you need within yourself to free yourself from the causes and conditions of suffering. That it all is inside of us. And that he's merely this instructor. He's someone that helps us to sharpen the tools that we already possess rather than give us something that we don't possess. And so in this way, I really see the Buddha as a mentor, as a teacher, as an instructor. But I have to admit, in terms of today's topic, wise concentration, when I looked at the Eightfold Path, especially early on, and I saw this last factor, wise concentration, the Buddha became more of this kind of like high school teacher. I just remember sitting in class and over and over having the teacher tell me to pay attention. Andrew, sit down. Andrew, stop talking. Andrew, pay attention. Andrew, pay attention. And this part of uh, my projection of the Buddha made him this kind of disciplined, rigorous, um, like AP calculus teacher. Because concentration is not anything I've ever been proficient at. And I think most of us can relate to that. Number one thing I hear from people when they come up to me usually and talk to me about meditation is that I can't do it. I can't focus. My mind wanders. I can't still my mind. And so for me, too, this has been a really intimidating path factor, and I hope to dispel some of the common myths and misunderstandings around concentration and talk a little bit about what the Buddha meant by concentration in this path factor. So why it's important is concentration helps us to remain present. You know, usually we come to an interest in practicing meditation through people like Eckhart Tolle, the power of now, right? Or even maybe a Buddhist teacher like Thich Nhat Hanh, who talks a lot about the importance of being present in everything that we do. And so present awareness is a core feature of the Buddhist teaching. And concentration helps us to train our attention to be more in this moment as we're experiencing it. 
Concentration is also one of the core skills of mindfulness practice. I like to think that there are three skills that work together to develop what we call mindfulness. There's concentration, investigation, and equanimity. Equanimity meaning being with your present experience in a non-reactive way, in a non-judgmental way. So we try to be present, that's concentration. We try to be aware, that's investigation. And we try to do so without judging or reacting to what's happening. It's really those three things. So concentration is one of the core skills of mindfulness. And concentration also promotes tranquility. It helps us distill the mind. It helps us to see with more clarity the nature of the mind. Because the Buddha was very clear what causes unnecessary suffering. There's pain in life that we can't escape. But what causes suffering is the mind. Have you noticed this? Does your mind cause suffering? (laughs) Extra, unnecessary. So concentration helps us to slow down enough and tune in enough to the mind to be able to see how it causes suffering. So that's why it's important. And today, in order to maybe demystify concentration and to talk a little bit about its function within mindfulness, I'm going to first talk about the difference between concentration and investigation. And I'm then going to talk about how to develop concentration. What can we do as a formal meditation practice? And maybe even informally, what supports concentration? So first, we'll start with the Buddha's story, a short version. The Buddha was dissatisfied in his life. He had all of this wealth. His family had all of this power in the community. And yet he still suffered. And so he made a decision to leave home. And when he did so, he found two meditation teachers of his time. And this is an interesting thing to me, actually, because when we think of Buddhism, if we're just the lay person that's first getting introduced to it, we may think that Buddhism is the religion that does meditation. We may even think that meditation comes from the Buddha. But that's not the case. Meditation has been around for thousands of years. We don't even know where it comes from. And so even at the time of the Buddha's birth, meditation was a rich tradition. There were a lot of different varieties of meditation. And so the Buddha left home and he said, well, I want to find one of these meditation teachers. And I want them to teach me how to overcome the suffering in my mind. And he found two. Their names are Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, and they were very skilled in concentration meditation. So that's another interesting thing. The Buddha didn't develop this part of his Eightfold Path. It's actually a part of the tradition that was alive at the time. And he learned meditation practice from these two teachers that emphasized what's called a single-pointed attention. 
he learned to, we don't really know what the practice is. It could have been a mantra. It could have been focusing his attention on a breath. It could have been looking at a flame, visual concentration. But whatever it was, he learned to put his attention on a simple object and tranquilize his mind. And in doing this, we'll talk about this later, you can really deeply absorb your attention into the meditation object. Your mind can become so concentrated, so focused, that you develop these states of awareness called jhana, these deep absorbed states of awareness. And the Buddha mastered this. But he found that it only really temporarily provided relief for him. It didn't help him overcome the causes and conditions of suffering in his mind. It didn't help him examine and investigate the greediness in his mind or the hatefulness in his mind, the delusion in his mind. And so he didn't overcome these tendencies. He just temporarily got away from them. In a sutta called The Noble Quest, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he gives this discourse. And in a part of it, he says, this is quoting him, in this way did Alara Kalama, one of his teachers, place me, his pupil, on the same level with himself and pay me great honor. So what this means is he mastered the meditation practice so much that he developed the same competency in it as his teacher. He said, but then the thought occurred to me, this teaching doesn't lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge or to awakening, but only to the reappearance in the dimension of stillness. So dissatisfied with this teaching, I left. So what he means by this is this practice didn't help him to uproot the causes of greed, hatred, and delusion in his mind. It only helped him to temporarily quell them. And I like to think about it like when you're sick, you have the flu or COVID, God forbid, and you uh, take NyQuil, and it helps. You know, Some of y'all may like NyQuil, some of y'all may not. <laughs> And it uh, alleviates your symptoms. It helps you to sleep, right? It's got acetaminophen in it. It, I don't know, has some alcohol in it. <laughs> it will help you sleep and it will help your pain be reduced. But it's not going to fight the illness. And the Buddha learned to take his medicine. He learned through concentration how to quell the symptoms of suffering. And even experienced great peace and bliss. But that was only temporary. And that didn't really help him to fight the illness. So what the Buddha later discovered in his story, if we fast forward, was this open investigative awareness of mindfulness. That did lead to the liberating insight that helped him to eliminate suffering to uproot it in his heart and mind. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means here in a bit. But next I want to talk about what concentration is. What does it mean? 
And how is it used within mindfulness practice? So if you come to a Buddhist community that shares our tradition, here at Wild Heart, we're a part of what you could call the insight meditation community. Sometimes this is referred to as vipassana. Um, There's a lot of historical background to this, and you could debate whether we're truly an insight community because we're also a part of this Thai forest tradition that is a little bit different and so on and so forth. But basically, all you need to know is that within Theravada Buddhism, the old school Buddhism that we're a part of, the way of the elders, you usually tend to hear this framework about meditation that's twofold almost as if there are two different practices, meditation practices. And they are what's called samatha meditation and vipassana meditation. And samatha means the development of tranquility, just like the Buddha did with his teachers, developing this deep, absorbed attention around a single object, like the breath, And what that helps us to do is it helps us to still the mind through single-pointed attention. And then there's a separate meditation practice called Vipassana Vipassana, that's about the development not of concentration but of insight. And through Vipassana, you investigate the mind-body process through open awareness. So rather than a single object that you're focusing on, You open your awareness to see what's going on and you investigate the nature of it. A little bit of foreshadowing, we'll get into it later, but the nature of the mind and the body is that everything in the mind and body is impermanent and because it's impermanent, there's no part of the consciousness experience that is essentially you. It's not yours. The mind is happening, the lungs are breathing, the body is aging, the, everything's changing. There's no permanent self. The self is a verb, not a noun. That's a simple way to think about it. So we start to actually directly investigate this. Not because someone told you it's true or because you read it in a book or you try to intellectually understand how that causes less suffering but you start to be really interested and start to look at your thoughts. Do your thoughts arise and pass? Do they change? Do you think one set of thoughts one day and a different set of thoughts the next day? Do your feelings come and go? Do the bodily sensations come and go? We start to be open to investigating the arising and passing of our thoughts and feelings and emotions. And that is Vipassana. And that insight, and we'll talk about how and why maybe a little bit today, that insight unbinds us from suffering. And different Buddhist traditions emphasize these two aspects of meditation to varying degrees. Some traditions say you have to have a lot of samatha, a lot of tranquility. You have to actually meet a certain level of absorption in order to start to practice the investigation. And some traditions 
hint, our tradition, says you don't really need a whole lot of concentration. You can kind of go for the investigation pretty early on. That's where I always say the amount of concentration you need to meditate is about a C minus. And maybe this is my projection. I was never any good at it. So I found the teachings that resonated to me. I found the people that said, yeah, you don't really need a whole lot of that paying attention, concentration. And so far, it's worked out. No enlightenment yet. Many, many, many moments of small enlightenment that have kept me coming back. So when we're talking about concentration as a path factor in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, it is the eighth. And it is, in Pali Sanskrit, the word for it is sama samadhi. And sama means something like wise, and samadhi means something like concentration. So we can translate it to mean wise concentration. But if we break it down, and I know many of y'all have been around for a lot of the eightfold path factors as we've gone through them. If we break down the word sama, what it means is it doesn't necessarily mean wise. It means something more like balanced. Because in the Buddhist path, wisdom is keeping things in balance. The middle path. So we can translate sama to mean balanced. And then instead of concentration, the word samadhi comes from the root word samada, which means to collect or to bring together. So samadhi means something like a collectedness or a unification of mind. I like to call it a collectedness of attention. So sama samadhi means a balanced way of collecting your mind, a balanced way of collecting your attention. Because fundamentally what mindfulness is, it's a science of attention training. Even in the field of neuroscience, they know that we have this metacognitive ability to train our attention. And they know that your attention, wherever it goes, magnifies and that we also know that we have a negative attention bias. So we tend to proliferate into our problems and into stressful things and hyperfixate on things that are unpleasant or unsatisfying to us and constantly try to fix, manage, and control them to our liking, only to find that we inevitably find ourselves in moments of unpleasantness again. So this strategy, neuroscience and the Buddha before, said doesn't really work. So we can train our attention to be more present with what's happening. And we can learn to investigate the reaction towards what's happening and learn to develop more peace with what's happening. That's concentration, investigation, and equanimity. That's mindfulness. And so the reason why I want to teach this is it may sound like a lot, but I want to tell you that there's really a rich tradition. There's really a very comprehensive tradition that teaches the fundamentals of mindfulness. So why would practicing concentration be useful for us? The first thing I would say is that 
and I think neuroscience confirms. There's a uh, study by two Harvard psychologists named Gilbert and Killingsworth, really badass bad na last name, by the way, uh, that is called the wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And they found that when people's minds wander, just like I said a moment ago, they tend to wander towards worries and stressors. And what concentration helps us to do is it helps us to uh, intervene in the wandering mind. I would like to picture that there's a stream of thought, like a river, and it is happening all day long, the stream of thought. And the attention has become quite bombarded and caught up in the stream. So much so that it's just tumbling about in the stream of our thoughts. And one way that we might say this is your attention has become habituated to think. Thinking's not a problem, but your attention has become enmeshed with your thoughts. It has become obsessed with your thoughts. And we can actually bring our attention out of the thought stream, even if only momentarily. And you can do it right now. Feel one full length of your inhalation. And one full length of your exhalation. And even if just for a second, your attention is on your breath, your attention is not in the thought stream. They know this in neuroscience too, that your attention cannot be in more than one place. It moves rapidly between multiple places. Thus, the training of concentration helps you to stabilize it, give it something to do, the breath. And to learn how to break the addiction to the thinking mind. We are addicted to the thinking mind. Not your fault, it's kind of how your ancestors developed. You can blame them if you need someone to blame, but it's not your fault. But the good news is, is we don't have to follow every thought. We can intervene. The second thing that concentration helps us to do is it, like I said, it supports calm and tranquility. Over time, a steadiness starts to develop your attention starts to become more habituated towards the pleasant feeling that comes from contact with the breath. As an example, because you can have different concentration objects. So your attention learns how to delight in the presence of your breath, and it stays there longer. And as it stays there longer, especially in formal meditation, you develop more tranquility. And with more tranquility, this brings me to my third point, why concentration is important. You start to be able to see the movements of your mind with more clarity. So if you practice mindfulness, the initial practice that you receive is put your attention on your breath. When your mind wanders, notice it and then bring your attention back to the breath. Well, you do that a few hundred thousand times, you start to notice your attention wandering a little quicker, and you start to see a little clearer the types of thoughts it gets caught up in. You start to see a little bit clearer 
even how kind of consciousness works. That you had a thought, and that thought created a feeling, and that feeling created the attitude of not wanting, and your body tensed and tightened, and then that led to more proliferation about how you're going to fix it, and then that led to five minutes of worrying, and then that led to you barking you know, at your boss and upsetting them, and then you start to see this cause and effect relationship. So concentration supports insight. That's the third reason why it's important. And now I want to talk a little bit about investigation. We'll go over what is on the board afterwards. So concentration supports insight. It supports our ability to see more clearly the patterns of thought, the way our consciousness works, how one thought leads to a feeling, that leads to a reaction, that leads to you to say something or to do something, and so on and so forth. What we're investigating in the Buddhist teachings is we're investigating the mind, the nature of the mind. And the word that the Buddha uses for his teaching is this word dhamma, which means, when literally translated, it means the way things are. What you're investigating is the way things are in your mind. And he gives you some good things to look for, But he's not saying that this is the way things are with a capital T truth, remember? He's saying that you need to directly observe the way things are in your mind to see the nature of it. Another translation for the word dharma is phenomena. Dharma literally means that which appears. So you're trying to investigate that which appears in your mind. And one of the things that we can start to investigate if you look at this outer circle is you can start to investigate that which appears through your senses. A sound arises. A smell, a taste, a sight, a feeling, a thought. In Buddhism, thinking is one of our senses. I don't know if you've noticed, but I am pretty sensitive to my thoughts. And my thoughts arise. I sense them and usually run with them. So we investigate when these thoughts and feelings, sounds, sights, smells, tastes arise, and we investigate the feeling tone, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We investigate the mind's reaction to the feeling. It wants that pleasant thought about having ice cream later with our friends to be right now. (laughs) Tries to plan and organize our day to make sure we can make that meeting with our friends happen later. It may be aversive to a feeling, pain in your knee. You may be aversive to your mind's own restlessness and think, I'm not meditating correctly because my mind is distracted. So you start to notice the cause and effect relationship. The mind is restless, and then aversion, and then you think, 
I'm not meditating correctly and doubt arises and then you start chattering in your mind the whole time about how meditation's not right for you and so on and so forth and then the meditation teacher says just notice your thought without judging it and then you say oh thinking so now you're back to noticing your thought as a phenomenon as a process So we investigate through direct observation of these processes that are occurring. And we start to see the impermanent nature. This was Siddhartha's breakthrough. This was the Buddha's breakthrough. Sitting under the Bodhi tree, feeling his breath, he starts to open his awareness in a more mindful way and he starts to investigate the sensations coming and going. He realizes that everything is impermanent. Every physical and mental experience arises and passes away. And we know as an idea that things change. But the Buddha was not interested in making a statement about physical reality. He's not talking about quantum physics. He's not talking about matter. He's not talking about the physical world, in my opinion. The Buddha is pointing at how we can investigate with mindfulness the changing nature of phenomena at the level of sensation, feeling, mind states, and thoughts. We call these the four foundations of mindfulness. And we start to, through that process, embrace the constant change rather than fighting against it. We start to surrender to the flow of that experience. So when practicing mindfulness, you can start to linger in the thought. Instead of noticing the thought and returning back to the breath, when you have enough concentration, when your mind is watchful, you can start to watch. Take a moment and linger in the thought and be curious. And what are we investigating? See if that thought changes. Notice that thought as an impersonal process, not my thought. Did you command the thought? Did you make it happen? Or did it seem to just kind of arise? Start to investigate the feeling tone. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's impermanent. It changes. How you feel today you might feel different tomorrow. One of my awarenesses of this came around the third, the mind states, when I was going through a period of depression, which is what caused me to be interested in the Buddhist teachings, is that I thought that depression was this thing I had, a noun. And my depression told me that I had always felt this way, I'm always going to feel this way, and I'm the only one that feels this way. It felt very personal, my depression. And again, I'm not blaming myself. It's not like I wanted to have those thoughts. But my depression felt very concrete, like it was this thing that was happening to me. And I started to notice the depression with mindfulness and get more curious about it throughout the day. And I noticed that depression had a lot of different facets to it. It affected my energy level. Sometimes it came with very intrusive thoughts, and sometimes it didn't. 
Sometimes I felt very sad and lonely, and sometimes I felt pretty numb. Sometimes, actually, moments throughout the day, I felt pretty fine, but I just wasn't really noticing those moments before I was practicing mindfulness. And so I started to see my depression as a, uh, not my depression, but as the depression, as an organism, as this thing that was moving and changing that had all of these qualities to it. And I started investigating it. So I wasn't just noticing the loneliness or the sadness and saying, nope, back to the breath. I started getting curious and making the loneliness and the sadness a friend and an object of investigation. So this is how concentration and investigation work together. And if you look up on the diagram, I like to define these by attention and awareness. Concentration is a training of your attention. And to me, attention is closed. It's a closed system. You have an object that you're supposed to tend to. And one of these objects we'll talk about in a moment, and then we'll do the practice, is the breath. So when you're practicing concentration, your attention is trying to get as close and intimate to the breath as possible. Not by thinking about it, but by feeling it directly. And that's a closed practice. That means anything else that your attention does, you ignore. Now, you're supposed to have equanimity, so you don't judge when your mind wanders, it's okay when your attention wanders off. But the real goal of the concentration part of the practice is to put your attention on the breath. And then investigation is when your attention wanders to start to get really curious in that moment. And we don't have time. I mean, I gave a brief summary of all of the different foundations and all of the different things that you observe. But what we're trying to notice through investigation is the impermanent, impersonal, and ultimately unreliableness of our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Not in a dismissive, detached way, but in a non-reactive, engaged way, an intimate way. And that includes everything. That's an inclusive awareness. <clears throat> now, it's true, there are practices you can do that accentuate either parts of these. You can do a breath meditation practice and just do that. They have whole retreats that you can go on that are just based around developing concentration. And then there are whole retreats that say, all you need is momentary concentration. Let's get straight to the investigation right away. Mahasi Sayadaw has this noting technique. I practiced it for a month in Burma. They didn't tell me to concentrate. They told me to know every moment of experience. If it's a thought, note the thought. If it's a feeling, note the feeling. If it's an emotion, note the emotion. Just note whatever's arising and passing. And when the thing that you're noting passes, come back to your breath, sure, but note it. Note the arising and passing of your breath. So you can have different practices that accentuate different parts of this, but in our tradition, for me, more of the Thai forest lineage, 
they say that these things kind of go hand in hand. They actually work together. So how to practice concentration? And then we'll do the practice together. You can use a phrase. If you're doing loving kindness meditation, your meditation object is the phrase. But it's also the quality of loving kindness. It's a mind state. But it's also maybe a part of your body, like the center of your chest. So you use multiple anchors to try to cultivate this mind state of loving kindness. Uh, you can use what's called a casino, which is a visual object. You can look at a flame or a blue disc or, you know, people use visual objects sometimes. But I think the most reliable object and the most rudimentary one that we all start with is the breath. And why is the breath a good object? Well, you're going to have it with you as long as you're alive. So I won't always have a flame that I can light. But I will always have my breath that I can feel. The breath tends to be relatively neutral. Sometimes there's a illness that you're experiencing, allergies or something, but you have many points of contact that you can notice the breath. So if you're feeling like it's unpleasant to notice the breath up here, you can feel it down here. You can feel it just in the lifting of your shoulders and the falling of your shoulders. There are a lot of different locations where you can notice it. <coughs> Excuse me. And the breath is also a good object because it's dynamic, but simply dynamic. It's in, pause, out, pause. In, pause, out, pause. And we never graduate from the breath. It's always, for me, a home base. If my mind becomes overwhelmed with restlessness and it's wandering endlessly, I can always find the breath in my body. If I'm caught up in a moment of self-doubt or self-criticism, I can always find the breath in my body. And today, during our practice that we're about to do, I'd like to really focus on these two qualities. So we're going to get a little bit into the Buddhist teachings on how to develop concentration in the preliminary stages. So if you're looking at this idea of jhana, of developing deep, absorbed concentration, the beginning of that teaching is about these two qualities called vitaka and vichara. And vitaka means directed attention, and vichara means receptive sensitivity. And I'll talk about what these mean, and then we'll do it. So it's like the yin and the yang, two qualities of concentration. The yang, if I remember correctly, is the more like masculine, assertive part. So focusing your attention on the breath takes effort. It's not a passive practice. You got to do it. But the point of doing it is not to do it perfectly. The point of doing it is to become really intimately connected with the breath. So much so that you start to develop this kind of pleasantness about the breath, a tranquility about the breath, which is the yin quality. 
listening into the sensation. So the practice that we're going to do is imagining that your breath is like a friend that you want to listen to. And you keep getting distracted from the conversation. (laughs) And when you come back to your friend that you want to listen to, you really want to listen. Not because you have to, but because you want to. And that's the trick, I think, to developing concentration. I'm focusing on my breath not because I have to or because I'm trying to get anywhere or get anything out of it. Because with a friend, you don't want it to be transactional. You're listening to the breath because you want to. So we're going to try to connect with the breath, and I'll offer some instructions at the beginning of how to do that. And then we're going to try to sustain. So for the last portion of the meditation, we're going to see if we can really linger intimately with the sensations of the breath. All right. And before we do that, I'm going to read a quote by Sayadaw Utejani about effort in meditation. He says, right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It's not energy used to focus hard on something, which is striving. In the effort we use in meditation, we simply direct ourselves to remain aware. It's not difficult to be aware or to be mindful, but it's difficult to do it continuously. For this, you need wise effort, which is simply perseverance. Perseverance. 